Welcome to the Mana Church Stafford Podcast, where we're all about equipping God's people to change their world. We are thankful you are here and pray this message encourages you to love God, love others, and love the world more fervently than before. Now, let's get to it. that we would start the We series uh, next week where we're going to look at uh, the story of our church, you know, our story. But our story is really made of every one of your individual stories. And so today I'm going to look at a little bit of my own story, hopefully encouraging you to look at what God is doing in your own stories. And uh, thank you, Jake, for inviting me. Um, since I want to be invited again and maybe for Jake to buy my lunch, I'm going to start with using a catchphrase from Mana Church, which is, you were made on purpose for a purpose. You were made on purpose for a purpose, that's it. I got the lunch, so we're good. Um, and the idea is that God is working uh, in your life, uh, and that I want to encourage you this morning to see God's purposes through your own stories, and telling you how he worked in my life, hopefully will encourage you to seek God as well. And obviously, we may not have exactly the same story. Um, my story is going from unbelief as a French atheist to Christian belief and then to become a theologian and philosopher. Um, but we may not have all of the same story, but the God that we come to believe in is exactly the same. So we may not have exactly the same story, but we have exactly the same God. And so in telling you what God has done in my life, I'm hoping to encourage you to turn to that same God and see what he's doing in your life. So let me start from the beginning. In case you did not pick, the, pick up on this yet, I am French. So I was born and raised in France, uh, near Paris. I was in a wonderfully loving family. Uh, I had an older brother and a younger sister. Um, and we were uh, nominally Catholics. That's a lot of us, that generation in France, uh, we were raised in the Catholic Church. Um, but we went there and we, we didn't um, we didn't really believe that this was true. It was more of a tradition, like the kind of thing that you do. Uh, we would just attend because that's what we've always done. You know, that's what we are. We're Catholic, so we go to church. Um, but, you know, it's, it's actually possible to go to church and actually not believe it, right? Um, and Jesus addressed a little bit of that pattern that he found in his own time where he spoke to some Pharisees and he told them, um, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So this is very much where we were and not feeling like hypocrites or anything. It was just, all right, we go to church and this is what we do. But I never really believed that there was actually a God on the other side of those recited prayers. So um, this is what we did. Uh, and by the way, it's not a unique thing to Catholics, right? So you can very much be uh, practicing religion and be an unbeliever, whether you're Protestant, Orthodox, or Catholic. But this is where we're at. And um, I... Yes, we went through the motions, and as soon as I was old enough to tell my parents that I actually didn't believe any of this, uh, my brother and I proceeded to simply say, oh, look, this is ridiculous. We're not really believing any of this stuff. We want to stop doing this. And so we just stopped going to church. Um, and our life as atheists was very the, much the same that it had always been, except that we were no longer wasting our time on Sunday morning uh, church pews. Um, it also developed some degree of resentment. We, we thought, well, we've wasted also a lot of time on the going to church. Um, and in France, it's very much in the air to see 
religion as like superstition, so you gotta kind of be dumb to be a believer. So we started to look down on religion, get resentment and really hating all sorts of religious activities. Didn't want anything to do with it. God forbid that I would ever become a believer again. Uh, and so in this um, environment, uh, I was basically looking for my own happiness in all sorts of avenues. So I was uh, trying to uh, get a job that would provide well for my family. I was pretty good in school. I was a bit of a geek. So I did well in math and physics. And so I studied math, physics, and engineering science and became an engineer, a software engineer, working in finance. And uh, I was also playing volleyball. So I was pretty little when I was a kid. But then puberty hit with a revenge. And I grew to be six feet four. And uh, I was scouted to play volleyball with my brother. And uh, turned out I could also jump really high. So I was scouted to play in National League. So every weekend, I would play volleyball games, traveling all around the country to play in uh, National League volleyball. And I uh, was enjoying this very much. Another avenue in which I was looking for my own happiness was music. Uh, I was playing the piano when I was little, and then I turned into playing the keyboard and um, um, put together a band, a rock band, with some of my friends where I would play. We would re uh, write our own music, record, play on live, uh, and I was living the dream of being a rock star. Um, so that was another avenue where I was seeking my own uh, fame and happiness. And uh, finally, one big important area of my uh, search for happiness for uh, a French atheist my age was uh, the area of looking for relationships. And so I was pursuing pretty aggressively relationships with women, uh, sometimes long term, sometimes only for a night. And um, thinking, you know, all of those things are going fairly well for me. And I thought this was the way that uh, I was going to find happiness. Uh, and in this thoroughly secular environment in France, the chances of me ever hearing the gospel, let alone believing it, were felt pretty small. Um, and this is how they happened anyway. Um, so the probability of something happened, by the way, uh, if you put God in the picture, uh, changed, that changes a lot. Um, the, the Proverbs say that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right? So, we do our own things, we live our lives, we look just ahead of us, but God sits above all of this and he works together all things. And so a story of very improbable redemption like this makes a whole lot of sense with the God who guides our every step, even though we think we plan our way. So how did it, ha it happen despite the odds? Well, I went on vacation with my older brother uh, in the Caribbean uh, to the island of St. Martin, unbelievable place. Uh, we were going there for obviously an ungodly amount of uh, vacation time because you know we're French so we have the vacation and so uh, we went there to uh, just enjoy the beach uh, play a little bit of beach volleyball and just enjoy the island in the Caribbean um, and uh, what happened there is that on the day where we went to a bit of a distant beach we went there and we didn't have a car we were dropped off there enjoyed the day at the beach and uh, on the way back, now we need to come back, and it would have been a long uh, walk to come back home. And um, my brothers decided that we would just uh, hitchhike our way back home. I had never done hitchhiking my entire life, and I have not once done it since. But for that one time, uh, we decided that we would hitchhike and see what happens. And so we uh, get along the road, and we put the thumb up. And after a couple of minutes of doing that, uh, there's a small car that stopped. Uh, with two American tourists in it and they looked very attractive one of them was a former model and actress uh, and they stopped and they were not even stopping to pick us up 
they stopped because they were lost on their way from the airport to their hotel. And so they stopped and they asked for direction. And so we asked, well, where are you going? And they, would, they were going to a hotel that was next door to the house that we were staying at. And so we said, well, we'll tell you where it is if you pick us up. <laughs> and so we walked in and uh, we drive towards the, the hotel and our house. And so obviously we pick up on the fact that they're attractive, it's American tourists, very exotic for us. So we start flirting and with a French accent, it's starting to work out. And uh, we arrive to their hotel and we made connections to see them uh, again. And long story short, I ended up in a relationship with the American one who was from New York. So one from was from New York, the other one was from Miami. And so I ended up uh, being with that woman on the island. And very quickly, she informed me of two very problematic things. Uh, one, she believed that God exists. She was a professing Christian, which to me was intellectual suicide, as I've told you. It's like, oh, not, not again, not this. Uh, so that was extremely problematic. And second thing, even worse if that was possible, uh, she believed in abstinence before marriage. Yeah, that's not going to work for us, but she was very attractive. I was very, you know, it was very exotic, so I figured I want to pursue this. We're going to remove those obstacles. And it was like a thrilling story. There's even obstacles to overcome. Uh, and then we'll be uh, great together. So I decided to pursue this even after the vacation ended. Uh, and I returned to Paris, and she returned to New York, and he were in a very problematic long-distance relationship uh, where religion, uh, clearly, and her views on Christian ethics would stand between us. And so I figured, well, if I'm going to be uh, trying to refute her silly beliefs so that we would be together, I need to understand a little bit what she believes, and so I picked up a Bible. I still had an old dusty Bible in my apartment, so I picked it, dusted it off, um, and picked it up, and I started to open it just to see kind of what she uh, believed. And uh, another thing that I did in that kind of initiative was to, um, to figure, look, uh, if any of this is possibly true, if there's actually a God up there, uh, then what I'm doing might be interesting to him. So I figured, look, there's at least one experiment I can do. I'm a scientist. I'm going to start praying as an atheist. Uh, and I said, you, God, if there's one out there, um, I'm looking into this, so why don't you go ahead and reveal yourself to me? I'm open. Well, I wasn't really open, but I figured that wouldn't stop God if he existed. Um, and, you know, there's some precedent, so it's kind of a weird picture to have the atheist uh, pray with unbelief. But the Bible says, in Jeremiah 29, says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So if you seek God with all your heart, he promises that he will be found, which is sort of good news. Good news that he will be found if you, if you seek him, but I was like, with all my heart, I'm not that driven to find God here. Uh, thankfully, there's another way that uh, God is found. You know who else finds God? Those who don't seek him. <laughs> In Isaiah 65, it says, I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. So to summarize, God is found by those who seek him and those who don't seek him. So I'm sure you're one of those, and let's see if God finds you. So I picked up that Bible and tried to see what uh, the whole deal was about. I started to read the New Testament to read about Jesus, and here I was really surprised um, because the Bible turned out to not be boring like I expected it to be. Um, Jesus that I was reading about really felt different. Um, 
he was smart. Uh, he captivated his audiences. The people around him were like, electrified at the sound of his speech. Uh, he had quick comebacks. You know, people were coming trying to trap him in his words, uh, to lay snares, and he would just have the, the sharp comeback to completely dodge the objections and to address the state of their hearts. Just a very fascinating character, and I wasn't too sure what to think of that Jesus. So it was a, a bit of an odd experience, and you know that sometimes the Jesus of your adulthood is feeling very different from the Jesus of your childhood. So I don't know what your childhood experience has been, how much exposure you had to the Bible, but sometimes you come back to those texts with a fresh look and then, oh, that's not really the way it felt. And this was a bit my experience here. I wasn't too sure what to make of that Jesus. Um, but, you know, obviously I was still very far from any sort of belief. I couldn't even go to church, uh, even if I wanted to, because I was traveling the country every weekend to play volleyball games. Um, well, that barrier didn't last too long uh, because maybe a week or two after I prayed that unbelieving prayer, um, my shoulders started to fail me. Out of the blue, uh, 10 minutes into every volleyball practice, I just couldn't spike. It was My shoulder was inflamed uh, and it's just I couldn't even raise my arm. So I couldn't spike, I was useless, uh, and the doctor couldn't really tell me what was going on. The physical therapist uh, best efforts didn't really help. I was just un unable to play volleyball. And I was told, well, we don't really understand what's going on, but you just basically need to rest your shoulder. You need to stop volleyball for a few weeks. So sometimes you know, there's often more uh, going on in your story than even you realize. Um, and sometimes a, a bit of a setback uh, can feel like this is actually God working one piece of the puzzle together and you don't realize it. For me, I was against my will off of volleyball courts, uh, and so I, on that first Sunday without a volleyball game, I figured, look, I've been looking into this Christianity thing, let me go and see what those Christians do when they get together. And so I drove to a church uh, in Paris, an evangelical church that I understood would have the same sort of practices that uh, my girlfriend had. And uh, I went to that church, uh, and I walked in, and I felt extremely awkward uh, because I felt like my simple presence in the building was already an intellectual crime, that if any of my family or friends saw me there in a church, I would die of shame. So I felt very awkward. Um, and these people also, they were praying like they really meant it. Like it looked like they, were, they thought there's actually a God listening to their prayers. So it was very odd. Um, I sat down towards the front and uh, the pastor came and he preached his message of which I remember about zero. I do not remember a word that he said. I don't know if, we were, if I was just too obsessed in my thoughts of, man, I hope nobody sees me, uh, that I didn't really pay attention, but I, I saw the message, I saw the worship, and it was good musicians, which was surprising. Um, and um, that's it, I figured, okay, the message is over, um, I've seen what I need to see, let me jump on my feet and escape so that I don't have to introduce myself to any of those weirdos. And so I jumped on my feet and I walked down the aisle to go to the back door to leave, uh, trying to not make eye contact with anyone. And then I reached the back door, uh, I opened the door, and I literally had one foot out the door when a blast of chills came in my stomach and rushed up in my chest and grabbed me by the throat. And I was frozen on the doorstep. And I thought, and I heard myself thinking, this is ridiculous, I have to figure this out. So I closed the door, turned around, 
and I went straight to the headmaster. <laughs> so, you believe in God, huh? Yes. <laughs> said, well, how does that work out? He said, well, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Uh, let's make an appointment and we'll discuss. And so I did. Uh, I took him up on this. I, the, a couple of days later, I went to his office um, after work and uh, we started talking. Um, and I told him why I was even interested in the question because of that relationship. Um, and he, uh, he should tell me a bit how he can even believe that God exists and all of what's, what's, he, what's his Christian faith all about. And so we'll unpacked some of my question. Uh, it was a very fun conversation. The entire evening went through. I forgot to have dinner, <laughs> which is very unusual. Um, and I had lots of questions. And, and here was this guy who didn't seem like he was um, emotionally unstable. He seemed to have his wits with him, uh, be a reasonable man. And he believes that God exists and that Jesus was risen from the dead. And I couldn't make sense of it. So I was captivated. And so um, he gave me um, he gave me a bit of a of a booklet that he had written that was very smart that had, that was raising all sorts of questions about the basics of the Christian faith, and then instead of giving you the answer, it would point you to the Bible verses for you to go and look at the answers yourself. So he gave me that little booklet, and I went home and like a good student, I opened this up and I went through the questions and I went to the Bible and got the answers. All right, I understand that. I don't understand that. So I wrote the questions, and so I would like pile up a number of questions for when I would go back and speak with uh, that pastor friend now, uh, and to ask him, okay, what's that about? How do you make sense of that? And so I still have those notes written in French uh, at home with all of my questions from those initial reading of the uh, Bible. Um, and there's one question in particular that is all over those pages, I look back at this uh, years later and kind of smiled because the one question I've written over and over again everywhere that it did not make sense to me, and the question was, why did Jesus have to die? I did not understand the connection between Jesus dying on the cross 2,000 years ago and my life as a Christian if I ever were to become one. I just didn't register, and that question is all over the pages, and uh, the answer would soon come. But in the midst of those conversations uh, with the pastor, there's a number of things that, thinking about it, uh, I realized, yeah, I was wrong. Um, there's a number of intellectual barriers that fell down as we discussed and addressed my objections. So there's a number of them. Uh, and that was a very important step in my conversion because uh, sometimes, I mean, the mind needs to give permission to the heart to believe. Um, it's gonna be, no matter how strongly you feel about a matter, if your mind tells you this is nonsense, you're not permitting the heart to actually embrace that thing. And so for me, it was very much that, that step of addressing my intellectual doubts needed to be there for me to have permission to believe. So what are some of those pieces that I realized I needed to change my mind or that I had uh, misunderstood? There's a number of them. Uh, the first one is that, first of all, I thought that you needed to be stupid to accept the supernatural. I, I thought this was just for people who need God as a crutch, as a crutch but um, this is not for smart, sophisticated people. And so that first belief kind of was uh, manhandled by the very existence of the pastor, um, Robert, it was his name, uh, who was, like I said, intelligent, he was educated, he spoke well, um, didn't seem to be completely unstable, and yet he believed in miracles. He believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. And um, so I realized, okay, well, uh, 
it doesn't make Christianity true, but at least I'm getting a good picture that I don't need to check out my brain in order to become a believer. Seems like I would still be in good company of some people who have their wits with them, um, like the Jesus I was reading about in the New Testament, and yet believe in all of this stuff. And also Robert shared with me a couple of stories of his own where he had witnessed some of the supernatural, and obviously I wasn't prepared to accept his stories just at face value, but clearly he had some reason to believe that the supernatural is real. Um, the second piece on which I, like, I had intellectual barriers that fell down was on the issue of Christian ethics, especially in terms of relationships. Like I said, um, I thought, first of all, that abstinence before marriage was a repressive view. Uh, it was just, you know, we, somehow we hate those aspects of our uh, beings, and which it's just repressive to forbid that before marriage. Um, and the other thing is that uh, Christians being told to only marry Christians, I thought that's intolerant. Right? I mean, like, what's that a deal to, to just have to marry some Christian? So those were objections I had to the Christian sexual ethics. And here, Robert worked me through this, and he kind of refuted this idea, very prevalent in French culture, to think that religion is anti-relationships and anti-sex. And he just painted a pretty picture of what the Christian view is, that it's a gift from God, that yes, there are some guardrails, because it's so powerful and intimate, that it's actually in the context of a lifelong commitment in marriage. And while I, would, I still didn't like this <laughs> from where I was coming from, it started to make sense internally that if there's a God and he's created this for our good, then he's in the best position to tell us how to practice it. And then as far as marrying a Christian, like I thought it was intolerant, but then on second thoughts, it just made good sense. If God is the most important thing in your life and is going to be one of the things that drives every important decision in your life, what does that make your marriage when you are going to be disagreeing about the most important thing in your life? It's just not practical, it's just not smart. So even on the human level, it didn't really make sense to marry somebody who would differ so radically with respect to our worldview. Uh, beyond that, I thought that science disproved God because, you know, that's what French culture tells you. Um, so here I just sat down and tried to figure out, look, I've studied science myself, I'm an engineer, I've studied physics and mechanical engineering, and I did a review of all of my scientific knowledge uh, studied in school and realized there's none of it refutes God's existence and hardly any of it is even relevant to the question of God. You know, all I knew from physics could very well be true as God has simply created this world that operates according to those physical laws. There was really nothing to substantiate atheism from science. Now, later on I found out there's actually good scientific reasons to believe that God exists, but at least for the time being, I came to appreciate that, yeah, there's no scientific reasons to think he doesn't exist. Um, I also thought that somehow you needed science to prove that God exists. Um, because, you know, like what we know comes from science. And I realized, well, wait a second. Does everything we know come from science? Well, no, there's tons of things I know in life that are not told to me by science. Um, and I'll give you a few examples in just a second. But it's even worse than this because that very claim is self-refuting, right? You should only know things from science. Do you know that from science? No, you know that from bad philosophy. <laughs> so 
This was self-refuting, and I realized, wait, science is good, I don't have to check my brain out the door, I don't have to stop my scientific beliefs, but, you know, God's existence is kind of, like, doesn't have to be proven by science. Um, and then the final thing that I really uh, wrestled with intellectually was the issue of certainty. I thought that if I were ever to believe that there's a God, I should have to be certain. Like, if, if we're ever going to know this is true, we need absolute certainty, no room for doubt here. And I realized that standard is absolutely irrational. Um, there is hardly anything in life that we know with absolute certainty. And we know lots of things. <laughs> we know an overwhelming amount of things, but very few of those are with absolute impossible to doubt certainty. Um, and I, I came to appreciate there's a very distinct category of things that I know full well without absolute certainty, and it's the things that I've been told by testimony. So there's one simple way that, I mean, look at some of the things that I know like that. I know my name. I know my date of birth. I don't remember when I was born, but I know my date of birth. Um, I know that my brother was born with a C-section and uh, I wasn't there, I wasn't even alive. But I know my brother was born in the C-section, came out, he was blue like a smurf. I was told the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. I know those things happen. I wasn't there, I wasn't born. But I know that, I know my name, my date of birth, I know who my parents are. All of those things that I know, I simply know them because somebody who's trustworthy and knows them told me. Pretty simple. And I know those things by testimony. And I came to realize that my reading of the New Testament, I was reading the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I came to realize, look, this is what it is. It's a testimony. It's people who were there, who had first-hand knowledge, who were in a position to know if Jesus was risen from the dead, and they're telling you this much in their text. They're saying, we've seen those things. We've witnessed him. We've, after he was dead, we saw him, and we had lunch with him, and we spoke, and we've seen his hands, and we're telling you now because we think it's very important. And I realized, well, look, this is not crazy to trust a reliable witness, a testimony that actually can be a source of knowledge, not just blind faith, actual knowledge. So all of those barriers fell in my conversations with Robert and my own thinking about those matters. And like I said, the, the New Testament presents itself exactly like this. Uh, in the book of Acts, Peter is explaining what they're telling the crowds. He's saying, and we are witnesses of all that he did, right, Jesus, of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So this is the kind of testimony that we have in the New Testament. And it's also hard to think that they would be lying about this because they were facing persecution for those beliefs. So you don't exactly continue preaching something you know is false in the face of persecution. So we had this re reliable historical uh, testimony, and I thought this is actually respectable to believe those things. So intellectually, I started to believe all of these things could be true, uh, but I figured, look, if this is real, I'm gonna have to change a whole lot of things about my life. I wanna still be very clear, like I wanna be certain, not absolutely certain, I understand this is not reasonable, but I wanna be sure and so, as an unbeliever, my prayer started to shift to saying, well, God, if, if you're there, I mean, I'm starting to think this might not be crazy, 
But if you're there, I'm going to need you to reveal yourself to me more explicitly, more powerfully. Um, and so what I was expecting or hoping for was kind of an open heaven with light coming down from the sky and a big booming voice saying, welcome, son. Um, but what God did was a bit less theatrical, but much more brutal. And what he did is that he reactivated my conscience. And that was painful. Um, in the midst of this investigation, uh, I had come to commit some horrible things that basically involved cheating on my girlfriend a number of times in aggravating circumstances. And I will spare you the sordid details, but basically I had done all of this stuff. And it was so bad that even by my own standards of the time, which were already pretty low, I knew this was wrong, really wrong. And so I had kind of suppressed this. I had shoved it on the side, like, okay, let's pretend it never happened. I obviously lied to everybody to hide what I had done. Um, and lived as if it never happened. And in the midst of this and seeking God, uh, what God did is that he took it and shoved it in my face. And I was crippled with guilt. I could not escape that thought of what I had done. There was no escaping it, no excuse. I had done it. This was wrong. I messed up everything. How did I get in this place again? And in this, pla pain, in this place of physical pain out of the guilt I was feeling, the gospel finally clicked. And that, that infamous question that I had repeated all over my notes, now it made sense. Now I get it. That's why Jesus had to die. Me. So the Bible puts it like this. It said, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins not just our sins, but my sin. And I realized, yes, that's guilt I had. I was guilty, and it was paid for by Christ on the cross. And as a result, I don't need to be perfect to be accepted. I need to be forgiven. And this is what Christ secures on the cross. All of this finally clicked. My answer was there. And so um, the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? That's faith in Christ that saves you. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So I finally clicked, this made sense. It made sense of my experience, intellectually speaking, I knew this was permitted. And so I placed my faith in Jesus and the guilt evaporated. I felt forgiven by the living God. And I had a genuine spiritual re revival, renewal, like this new life. That's how the Bible describes it. So this guilt evaporated. I felt free. And now I had uh, confessed to God. I needed to confess to my girlfriend. So flew back to New York, confessed. Um, that was hard, but I thought, okay, this is good. I'm going to live in the light now. I don't have that burden of guilt. I can just freely say, yeah, I've done those things. And in Christ, I am forgiven. Um, so that worked out. I then decided that, okay, I'm following God here. Um, I'm going to move to the U.S. And so I took steps when I came back to uh, quit my job, quit my volleyball team, quit my band, um, and found a job. So again, in God's providence, I was working in finance, needed to move to New York. So that worked out okay. I got a job on Wall Street. And so uh, I moved um, and uh, left everything behind. And uh, after there, after I arrived, uh, after a few months, it became very clear that uh, our relationship was actually terrible. 
and we fight we fought all the time and it was just a horrible horrible season and by God's grace we eventually broke up and so here I was having given up everything I had in France to come here feeling like hey I was following God's lead I was extremely confused like, God what is this about uh, <laughs> I thought I was following your leads here uh, and this is just the time that God had after God isolated me there in New York uh, with very few friends, very few social activities, just my job during the day, I started to uh, get questions from some of my family and friends in France about my newfound faith. And I found myself having to explain to them why I hadn't lost my mind. So I started to explain to them what some good reasons are to believe that Christianity is true. And it felt so right. It's like, ah, oh, this is enjoyable. I've really been thinking about those things. I get to share them. I get to defend the gospel. This, this feels right. This is, this is my purpose. And so I studied those things. And so I, God had isolated me like this. No activity, no volleyball, no music, no nothing. Just working during the day. And every evening and every weekend, I would just spend my time like listening to formal debates and lectures and reading books and following the footnotes. And I would just digest this material, enjoy it a lot figured after a few months of doing this all the time, I figured if I'm going to be spending all of my time doing this, I might as well get a degree out of this. So I applied for seminary and I got a master's in New Testament studies. And then I pursued this with a doctoral work and I got my PhD in philosophical theology. So that's the broad lines of how God takes a French atheist who hates God, who hates religion, breaks down all of his intellectual barriers, reveals himself to him in the gospel, and makes a Christian philosopher and uh, theologian out of him. Uh, in the process, in the middle of, uh, between the master's and the PhD, I actually got to meet my wife, Catherine, uh, who was also American, but who was far better than whatever else I thought I was pursuing when I moved to the US. Um, we got married, uh, we now have five children, um, and we lived in New York for about 10 years, and it's only a couple of years ago that we moved here to Virginia, and that brings me here. Um, so, in the, great, in the guidelines, that's that. And by the way, my wife is the one who's playing the keyboard this morning, so <laughs> she'll be back in a few minutes. So, this is my story. Uh, what's the takeaway for you, um, beyond the fun story, obviously, and the French accent? Um, let me submit two things for you. The first one is that God can save anyone. Um, he can save anyone that you currently see as not saved. He can save you. And he can save even the ones that you see as so far away from God as to never want to hear about God again. I hated religion. I hated God. And somehow in his goodness, he worked all the pieces perfectly to bring me to the Christian faith. So I want to say for all those near you, um, hope, pray, and preach. Uh, and don't give up on those things because God is working in the heart. Uh, and maybe you're right in the middle of uh, that conversion yourself. Maybe you're still not sure and uh, God is working out uh, your story. And I want to say, don't run away. Uh, don't let him catch you at the door. <laughs> you know, surrender here. But uh, give your life to Christ. Uh, there is new life in him. Repent, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. The Bible puts it like that. And the second takeaway uh, for you is that your faith needs to be um, both intellectual and experiential. Those two aspects were present in my own story, where you, you clearly saw there was lots of experiences, right? That weird thing at the church, and then the emotions of the forgiveness, and there's also the intellectual barriers that need to be addressed. And I think that both of those dimensions of the Christian faith are extremely important. 
and you know which one
knowledge, they would place it intellectually speaking in the reliability of the account we have of Jesus dying and rising again, and emotionally that it would speak to their experience, Lord, that they would embrace it. So I pray, Lord, that if anyone in, the, in this room, in that place, you would grab their hearts and make them believe and repent. And for Christians in this room, Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us that balanced approach with both the intellectual and the experiential Lord. That uh, we would have a living faith that's a real reality every day, that we would not just uh, confess you with our mouth and not believe in you with our hearts. Um, and at the same time, that you also would give us this value for loving you with all our minds, that uh, we would be able to provide good answers, and that we would anchor our faith in this intellectual aspect of Christianity. Make us whole, Jesus. Make us love you more. And that allow us to treasure that love we have for you because we've been forgiven. Thank you for listening to the Mana Church Stafford Podcast. If you would like to connect with us, you can find us on the web at manastafford.church or download the Mana Church app. To listen to our new episodes as they become available, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. We would also love to meet you in person. If you are local, our services take place each Sunday at 10 a.m. We pray you have a blessed week, and we will see you next time.